0: Well, Dawson family, my name is Garrett Perkins. This is my fourth week here. I'm one of the directors at Canna Cut Camps in the southwestern part of Missouri. Uh, and it's been an absolute blast and honor for me to be here these past four weeks. I'm excited to finish off our series of a saving faith as we're going verse by verse, word by word, through the first chapter of James, and it has been an absolute blast being in Birmingham, Alabama. My first time being here, never been to Birmingham, I've gotten to see the sights, I've traveled around the Birmingham Homewood area, uh, and one, it's a beautiful, beautiful area, especially in the summer, I'm lucky that weather hasn't been too hot, so I can't say it's hot, I have no excuses, so I love Birmingham, so we're good. Uh, It's interesting, last week I mentioned uh, that I'm a foodie, and I've been trying some food around the Birmingham area, and I, met, I had so many people come to me afterwards and give me all their suggestions about where to eat. And then I even had people on social media mention to me, hey, you gotta try this, try Which one, Thankful you for your suggestions so I know everyone is dying to know where I ate dinner last night. I know you're dying to know. Well, just so you all know, I tried this amazing joint for the third time I went back to Saul's barbecue again. <laughs> it's unbelievable. It's unreal, but don't worry, I got something different. I got every single meat that they had to offer. I spent $26 for dinner. Don't tell my wife, oh it's live streaming, dang it. Uh, So yeah, I spent $26, I got three different sides and uh, I didn't finish it, I didn't throw it away because like a true man, I finished it for breakfast this morning, amen. (laughs) So uh, I love Birmingham, this place has been unbelievable. Um, I wanna catch everybody up, this is your first time with us, uh, we've been walking through uh, this concept of a saving faith. What does a faith look like that is shaped by the gospel of Jesus? Uh, and we've been walking through verse by verse, so we really learned week one that a saving faith is one that is hopeful amongst trials. That the Christian is the only person in the world that can be hopeful in the midst of suffering, pain, and anguish. And we can be hopeful because we know that Christ gave us something to hope for. Week two, we learned about this concept of a saving faith is one that is faithful. That in the second part of James chapter one, we learned that in the midst of suffering, Satan comes with temptation right on the heels of it. And a saving faith is one that in the midst of suffering and anguish, we don't abandon God, that we lean into God and we trust that he has something for us in the midst of it. And we can be faithful in the midst of suffering, trials, and pain because Jesus was immeasurably more faithful on our behalf. And then last week we learned that uh, this concept that a saving faith is one that is active, that God expects believers to look different than the world, that there are some commands and some imperatives on our life. But, uh, that our faith should be active. We should be doing stuff. But the good news is that our, sa- our faith should be reactive to God's proactivity on our behalf. We talked about that last week, that we are not active. We do not do things to earn God's approval because God has already given us this full approval through Christ Jesus, and that's good news. So we get to just simply react or respond to the goodness of God. And this week, we're gonna end chapter one of this concept of saving faith is Pure. Saving faith is pure. And we see this in verses 26 and 27, that, that God has created uh, this world to be redeemed. And really, what religion that is Christian religion that is pure uh, and unadulterated is what we learn in 26 and 27. So go ahead and turn with me to James chapter 1, 26 and 27. And before we do that, I hope you guys are encouraged that have been here for four weeks, because I, I say this every week. We've only been in one page of the Bible, we haven't even finished the first page of James chapter 1. and Has it not returned void? God has been so good these four weeks because every word is intentional. So if we simply just submit to this, our lives will be for the better. So as we do that, I just wanna encourage us that as we go to the word that we can, we don't have to dodge hard verses. We get to trust that every single word is intentionally there. So here we go, verses 26 and 27. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, He deceives himself, and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look at orphans, or excuse me, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I want to read it again. Verse 26, if anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself, and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So James is is tying a beautiful bow around uh, James chapter 1 with this concept of what religion is. If you think about it in the New Testament, Jesus talks about religion quite a bit, and really he uses it in a negative context. Because in the New Testament, when they hear the word religion, they immediately associate it with a certain group, the Pharisees. Because they were a religious group and they were really, they kind of created this uh, religion that was almost like a social group. And Jesus didn't like that. He had some pretty stark, strong words for the religious elite, the Pharisees. So immediately when the audience in this, uh, when they heard this in James, when they heard religion, they immediately associated it probably with a negative connotation. Uh, so, but James is trying to redeem this word to connect true religion to Christianity. That a saving faith is true religion, but really throughout all of James chapter 1, he's been doing this litmus test of two different types of faith, a saving faith that we've talked about and really an empty faith, one that bears good fruit and one that bears rotting fruit, one that is connected to the vine of Christ and one that withers away and falls, one that has dug a foundation on the rock of Christ and one that woes away with sifting sand. Now, this is this litmus test that he talks about. So, before we see what is pure religion in 27, I want to walk through all James chapter 1 again and show us really what an empty faith looks like. Because I think James's fear, and I think the pastoral staff, our fear, uh, is, that, is that our congregation, that the people sitting in the pews, that they would think that they are bearing good fruit, but actually they sit in the pews and their lives look no different and they are walking with an empty faith. So, Really, he talks about this, this religion that is actually deceiving people. In James 26, or 126, it says, if anyone considers himself religious, yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself. So, what type of religion is worthless? We learn throughout all of James chapter one. First point is that doubting God's goodness or his ability to provide amongst trials, we learned that week one. That we can ask him for wisdom, as it says in 1.5. We don't have to doubt God's goodness. That if our life isn't good right now, we don't associate that with God not being good. Because God was eternally good on our behalf. And we cling to the gospel so we can actually walk through these trials well. But an empty faith is one that doubts God's goodness amongst it. Next we see that an empty faith is one that's somebody that's actually chasing their own desires instead of God's goodness and that leads to sin. We see that, we talked about, uh, when it talks about a saving faith being faithful, that those that are enticed by their own desires, as it says in James chapter one, that instead of trusting that God is good amongst the suffering, that God is going to provide, maybe not a way out, but a way into a deeper intimacy with him, which is all we should want in the first place, we want to get out of it, so we turn to our own desires. We go, well, I'm just gonna cope. I'm gonna pull myself up on my own bootstraps and try and get out of this. Or I will cope with, whether it be alcohol or drugs or depression, whatever it is, I'm going to just cope because I know what's best for me, putting myself on the throne instead of God. And we've learned in James chapter one that chasing our own desires leads to sin because our desires are wrong. The natural inclination of our heart is wrong. And our desires leads to sin and then sin leads to death. Then we also learn this concept about anger, that an empty faith is one, it's where anger actually rules them, and anger, not just outwardly expressing it by yelling or abuse, but inwardly holding bitterness towards our brother, that doesn't reflect the righteousness of God, because somebody that is angry, both either internally or externally, is one that puts themselves on the throne and says, I have the right to hold a grudge against this person because they are lesser than me, and they didn't provide me something, which really, there was only one individual in all of humanity that had the right to be bitter and angry towards people, and that's Jesus Christ. Christ himself, and he did the exact opposite. That this should be the posture of a believer. That this is what an empty faith looks like. And and one, we learned that uh, an empty faith is someone that is hearing or claiming to believe in Christ, but their life does not reflect it. The life does not reflect a changed heart. And those are the people that we learned last week, that they look in the mirror, and then they walk away, and they forget about who they are. This is what an empty faith looks like. And James hits home in 26 when he talks about uh, an empty faith is somebody that has an unbridled tongue or someone that does not have a tight rein on their tongue, a.k.a. the words of the church are potent and powerful one way or the other. That an empty faith is one that once again puts themselves on the throne and thinks that I know best. So let me tell this person what is truth and by doing that I don't actually seek to understand them which is the posture that Jesus came in to seek to understand the lost and then bring them near, but instead we put ourselves on the throne and go, let me tell you what is right instead of let me show you who is good. This is what an empty faith looks like. So in verses 26, we see this culmination of of James's fear that that the people in the pews that he was talking to, because he was talking to Christians, that they were more concerned of their own righteous hearts that they would have to do all this stuff so they could be considered good or right, that they actually miss out on what is at the center of God's righteous heart, which is pure and faultless religion. So my fear today, and I think James's fear and Jesus' fear that there are some of us in the pews that if we actually looked at our lives, we would actually see that, listen, and go, yeah, that, that's actually more me. That's more me and maybe you've been bearing bad fruit, and the problem is not, well, I'm just not doing enough. The problem is you have forgotten your first love. What breeds against arrogance is humility. The way we get humble is when we recognize what we have done to a perfect and holy God and what he has done to reconcile that. The gospel is what shapes our actions. Our actions don't shape our heart. Our heart shapes our actions. So we, now we know what religion is not acceptable to God the Father. We know what empty faith is. So what's good is he ends in verse 27 to paint what is an acceptable and pure religion in the eyes of God our Father. Let's look at verse 27. So religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So what is pure religion? What is pure and faultless religion in the sight of God? It makes it really clear for all of us type A people that need the two points of going, Garrett, you've been talking all week about it. It's about belief in Jesus. The gospel will motivate our actions, but give me something to hold on to. What do I gotta do this week to express a saving faith? Here it is, first point. To visit orphans and widows in their distress. He leads with this. James could have gone anywhere else to go on what is the primary action of the believer in Christ Jesus? What is the primary expression of a saving faith, a faith that is empowered and shaped by the gospel to visit orphans and widows in distress, a.k.a. to reach out to those that are on the fringe that are far and bring them near. Does that not sound familiar? And then two, to keep oneself Unstained from the world, or the wording here is to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. So we this we see this twofold relationship to what it looks like to be a believer in Christ Jesus, summed up in one verse: to visit widows and orphans, and to keep oneself unstained from the world, or to be polluted by the world. So James finalizes chapter one, and he puts this beautiful uh, weight, equal amount of weight, on brotherly compassion and personal holiness. Because I think if we looked at churches today and the temperament of most churches today, we see a lot of churches that care deeply about the social justice gospel. That I'm gonna, I'm gonna do the work of God in the community. I'm gonna do the work of God in the community. And in the midst of that, they abandon their own relationship with Jesus and conforming their own lives to, what, to reflecting what Jesus looks like. So that they don't study their Bible. That, that, that's for the theologians. That I, I, don't need, I don't need to spend time with God. I don't need to make sure that I look different than the world. I just need to make sure I'm caring for people. And that that's 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 not Christianity. That's any other religion can do that. But if it's not shaped and motivated by the power of the gospel, it's just philanthropic. That won't breathe life. But then vice versa we have we have churches that come and they study the word and they know and they believe this deeply, but their lives do not look any different than an atheist. They they have no desire to visit the widows and the orphans, and they have no desire to reach out to those who are far and on the fringe and bring them near because they expect government to do it maybe or they expect uh, other nonprofits to do it. That's not my job. My job is oh, I'm a teacher, Garrett here. I'm a teacher. It's not my job to do that. I'll make sure that I motivate other people to do that or other people going. No, I'm good at loving, but my job is not to maybe study the deep things of God. And de- the definition of theology is the study of God. God is your father. God wants to in a relationship with you. So if we do not desire to know our God, I would argue that we might not desire God. That James culminates this beautiful picture of, this, of what the life of a believer looks like. It's not one or the other. That our life with Jesus is a life of drawing intimately near to Jesus while bringing others intimately near to us. And does that not sound Familiar. You think about the greatest commandment. What did Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, personal holiness. Make yourself look different than the world, look more like Jesus. And two, love your neighbor as yourself. This is what the life of a believer looks like. That social justice and personal redemption are not separated, but they're intimately connected. And as we grow more in tune and look more like Jesus, our capacity for compassion will grow. That it's not one or the other. I think that we like to separate them instead of going, this is what is expected. This is what is pure and faultless religion in the eyes of God. So pure religion in the sight of God, what is at the very center of God's, Heart is conformity to Jesus' image, personal holiness, pursuing Christ daily to look more like him, removing the moral filth and receiving the word implanted, as we talked about last week, but then also fulfilling and aligning with Jesus' mission, that we're going to extend a hand to those who are far from God and bring them near to the family of God. This is what it looks like to be a Christian. So this is a great litmus test for us this morning. Which one are you comfortable in? Which one's easy for you? Because I think we all probably land on one, one level of it that's easier. And God is expecting and desiring for us to lean into both sides of what it looks like to be a believer in Christ Jesus. And James gets this. He gets it. what is at the heart in the center of God. That's why throughout all James chapter one, he refers to God as what? A father. Three different times. Does he talk about God, the father of the heavenly lights, all gifts come from above, from coming down from God, our father. Talks about in verse five, that we should ask for, ask for wisdom from God, and he will give it, just like a father would give it. Because he is our father. And last we see here that he refers to him as a father one more time, that this is what pure and faultless religion it is accepted by God, our Father, because James understands that the natural posture of Yahweh God, the one true God, is a Father. James understood that this, this, is, this is what God looks like. Look at some of the scripture about how God describes who he is. Deuteronomy ten eighteen <coughs> says that he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. Psalm 68.5 says that, he, that God is a father to the fatherless, a defender of the widows. This is God in his holy dwelling. So it's not just God coming to the world and being a father. This is God, Old Testament, in the tabernacle, in the holy of holies, the natural posture of God, Yahweh, is a father to the fatherless, a defender of the widows in his holy dwelling character. He is a father primarily. This is our God. In Exodus 22, verses 21-23, it says, do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners once in Egypt. Do not take advantage of the widows and the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. Notice that he says, do not mistreat the foreigner, and he reminds the Israelites, the chosen people of God, a.k.a. for us Christians, he reminds, he's reminding us today that do not oppress or ignore those that are far, or those that are aliens, or those that do not offer you anything, because you once were far from me, you once were an alien of me, you were once offered me nothing, and what did I do? Bring you near. Why can we not exchange a fraction of gospel action to the world? And the answer is not because we're not trying hard enough, the answer is because we don't truly see the goodness of God on our behalf. Because I think all along, adoption has always been at the center of the gospel, and we can reach out to those in need when we understand and truly actually fall more in love with the fact that we were in immeasurably more spiritual need. Because God wants us to understand this concept because he's a father first and this, this concept of adoption is all throughout the New Testament. That word was not used in the Old Testament. Adoption happened in the Old Testament a couple times, but they didn't use that word. This word came into play in the New Testament because I think God, through His beautiful concept and design, wanted us parents to see this and understand it, to, to get a picture of what it looks like to be in Christ. Listen to this language that he uses to describe the believers. Ephesians 1.5 says that in love, he, God, predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus. Galatians 4, 4 through 7 says that, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those, us, who were brought under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons and daughters. We were far from God. And he said, I want you, Garrett, in my family now. I can't wait another second. So I, you, the world's gonna, I'm gonna give you my son and it's gonna punish my son what you deserve and you are gonna be my son. It's unbelievable. And I think we just walk right over it and forget what God has done on our behalf. And my favorite verse, 1 John 3, 1, uh, about adoption, it says that see what kind of love the Father has given to us so that we should be called children of God. Ephesians 1 and 2 talks about how we were actually children of wrath, but, but God demonstrated his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died. We get to be called children of God, of, of God. We are now not of ourselves, we are of God. And if we truly actually started to understand this and believe it, it should shape and change us to actually want to extend the same in the world, not so we look good, but so we can go, but, because I already got this. I already have this. So of course I would give the same to you because you deserve just what I deserve from God. And I'm going to utilize my, my actions, my resources to reflect God. So when I share the gospel with you, uh, I can actually connect it to something more beautiful. It all works this beautiful picture when we actually start connecting gospel action with God's gospel action on our behalf. This is when people go, oh, that's why you live that way. I want that. And then salvation comes. Our actions are not to gain approval from God. Our actions are for the world and for our intimacy with God. We already have his full approval. So What do we have to fear? So isn't until we see the greatness of our Heavenly Father that we truly will have a burning desire to reflect that same kind of love to those who are in need. That when we look out and see the needs of this community, we see ourselves. And that we get to actually reflect the loving kindness of God our Father to the world. So what do your actions towards your community reflect about God? Because you were created in the image of God, you are now a child of God. If the answer to the question of am I a Christian is yes, what do your actions reflect about the goodness of God? Or does it reflect that he's a picky and choosy God? That I'll love them, but I will ignore them. I will bring them near, but I won't bring them near. I will give here, but I won't give here. Where God gave lavishly every day to us this is the posture of a believer personal holiness intimacy with God brotherly compassion aligning with God's mission because adoption is at the center of the gospel because I think it's easy for the church to actually point fingers and and I say with me too because I did this Uh, for a long time and point fingers and expect government or expect nonprofits to actually fix the problem of whether it be uh, foster care or the poor, whatever it is. And it is not government's job to fix the problem of sin. It is God's problem through the church. It is not government's job to fix the problem of the brokenness of society. It's government's job to protect us so we have the freedom to do it. And in this country, we do. So it's time for the church to actually stand and go, because I've been given much, I will give much. And this has rocked the Perkins household because this is near and dear to our hearts. Because about five and a half years ago, when Emmy, my wife and I started talking about marriage and when we got engaged, I learned that uh, my my wife just kind of opened the floodgates of her heart and shared her heart for adoption. Uh, and I immediately, whoa, 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 I want my, it's even hard for me to say it, I want my own kids. My own kids. Like, biology has something to do with love. Because I, I had a misunderstanding of the gospel, and over five and a half years, uh, I, I continued to learn about this, fall more deeply in love with the gospel, and I realized that What sweeter way for me to experience what God has experienced on my behalf, for me to fall more in love with God than to invite a child who is far and bring him near. And man, what we have learned through this adoption process as we walk through this uh, process of hoping that a mother will choose us and be absurdly brave and choose life for her child, not for political reasons, but for the kingdom of God that we have seen that uh, it's just so clear to me that the adoption that we're walking through with our hopefully soon-to-be child and that God's adoption on my behalf, there is absurd parallels. That right now we're in the process of figuring out how to pay for it and it's very expensive as as some of you know. That the adoption that God came on our behalf was absurdly expensive. To the point of death, not just money, pain. That there was a cost. There was immeasurably more than I would feel. So of course I can give my resources. I don't need that. we, We deserve, we want to give a child life just like God wanted to give me life. That adoption was expensive and is expensive. So I can do this and walk faithfully, actively, purely knowing because God has done the more expensive cost on my behalf. And then there's legal status involved in adoption. We're in the process with lawyers and figuring out that whole world right now, how custody works and can the mom, how, how, what's all that gonna look like. And there was legal status involved in our adoption. That word redemption is a legal term. That's a lawyer term. That we were we were redeemed from the punishment, justified from our punishment. Justice had to be had. It just wasn't had on you and me. It was had on the shoulders of the only perfect person to ever live. And we exchanged legal status. He took unrighteousness, I was given righteousness. So absolutely, I can give a a child that, that might not offer me anything right now and give them a complete legal status into my family because God has given me immeasurably more. And we see this beautiful picture of this inviting into full inheritance of the family that we're walking through paperwork, that, that when we sign over custody, them, this our future son or daughter, Lord willing, we'll, we'll get, I will look at them and I'll say, you are a Perkins. You, you are, it's, biology does not make you my son. Choice makes you my son, and I want you in my family, so you have all of the inheritance of all of your other siblings, that you are fully a Perkins, that you get everything that all the other children get, that you bear my name. And this is how our adoption works, that God looked upon us and does not see Garrett. He sees Christ in me. And that I have the full inheritance of the kingdom of God, that I am considered a son of God, a child of God. And when God looks at me, he, ge- he imprints on my name the seal of the spirit, as it says in Ephesians 1.13, the guarantor of my future inheritance in heaven. I get the entire kingdom. This is through, through that lens of adoption that I've been given, I've been just been able just to run full head of steam and last we see that adoption, it takes a lot of planning. That we've been, we've been planning for this for five and a half years and how to save money and how are we gonna do it and let our families know and all just intricate planning and God had been planning from the foundations of the world to redeem your soul and adopt you. In Genesis 3.15, right after man sinned, God looked at Satan the serpent and said, I will put enmity, I will put division between you, Satan, and Eve's offspring, between your powers and Eve's offspring, a.k.a. there's gonna be a son born of a woman thousands of years after this that's going to crush you. That from the beginning he'd been planning to save and adopt Garrett. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6 says that he, God, chose Us in Him before the foundations of the world, before He created the mountains, before He created everything else, He had me and you in mind, knowing that we would be unfaithful to Him. This is our God. And if that will not motivate us to stand and willingly give Him our actions, nothing will because we do not have to gain God's approval. We have full approval in Christ Jesus, so we get to offer the world the same gift. that A child, a mother, an orphan, foster care system, the poor, the needy, the fringe, that they do not have to offer us anything as the church, because we have everything in Christ Jesus. So we get to go, and actually be the church. So this is the very heart of God the Father. That we would do the work of God because God has already done the work for us. Our eternity is secure. So my hope is that for some of us here, I think we've been wondering, what do I do? Like how do I, how do I interact with the community? And, and it's going to be clunky, it's going to be hard. How do I relate to someone? I was born in a good family, a quality family. How do I relate to those that are far? Your job is to understand. And you actually can relate because you were an orphan until God brought you near. So we get to extend the same to the world. And as we close in a time of response and worship, um, i want to ask everybody here the same question that was asked me a long time ago. Um, about this, whether and you can apply it to adoption, foster care, reaching out to the poor, what are you going to do, how how do we respond to the goodness of the gospel? I think a lot of us, we go, um, should we engage in foster care, should we adopt, or should we serve the poor in this, should we do this? And instead of asking that question, I think that's backwards, we should be asking the question, is there any reason we shouldn't? And there are good reasons sometimes that we can't engage in certain things. But God is expecting the church to invade the fringes of society so that God can be made much of. Let's pray. Jesus, you have done a mighty work on my behalf. And God, if I would just every morning wake up and actually remind myself that I am a new creation, that I am being sustained, that I am righteous, I am clean, I am pure, not because I have done anything today, but because you have done everything already for me. God, I pray if there are some people here, some families, some married couples that are, that are wondering, God, what would you have for us in this? But God, maybe this was the push over the cliff to respond and receive what you have for them in obedience, God. And maybe that means foster care. Maybe that means adoption, God. I pray that you would instill it on our hearts to be a people of action and not a people of passivity. We love you. Amen.